Welcome to the Logically Faithful podcast. This podcast is created to point seekers towards the beautiful, the good and the true, and to act on what gives liberty, equality and justice for all. This podcast is created to give listeners a taste of the beautiful, cultivate an affection for the good and to provide rational path to the true, helping to bring justice, equality and liberty to our society. Your host is Khaldun Swice. Associate Professor of Philosophy at the City Colleges of Chicago and Tutor of Philosophy with Oxford University. Okay, well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Logically Faithful podcast. I appreciate you being with me. Uh, today, I have a very special guest, Mr. J- Jim Warner Wallace is actually a cold case homicide detective and adjunct professor of apologetics at Biola University in California. Is that La Mirada, California? Is that correct, Jim? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Beautiful place. Uh, Jim has a extensive background with law enforcement. He also has a lot of degrees in design and architecture. He's considered himself what's called an evidentialist. Uh, we can talk about that more later on, what exactly that means. But his experience in law enforcement only served to strengthen his conviction that truth is directly tied to the evidence. Now, Jim claims that at the age of 35, he became seriously convinced to look seriously at the evidence for religion, particularly that for Christ, and that altered the trajectory of his life. And I'm interested to see, and specifically for us uh, as we're listening, of how that relates to his work in uh, the area of the spiritual, the the, the, the f- stuff that we can't actually put our hands on per se, and how he would draw logic and evidence into that. Jim, I am excited and enthusiastic that you are with us. Thank you for being with us. I'm glad to be with you. you know, I've, I've been following you as well, and so I'm just, just really glad we finally carved out time. Right, We went back and forth for a number of days trying to carve this out, and we finally did it, so I'm glad. I'm blessed that you made some time for that. Well, Jim, I have some significant questions for you, so we'll go back and forth on these. Tell okay. us something about yourself, specifically what's not in your bio, not on your CV per se, of what motivates you to continue doing what you're doing. Boy, good, good uh, question. Because um, you know, there's, there are days when I, you probably feel the same way, where you're just wiped out and, and exhausted, and wondering, you know, you know what, what was I thinking again? What exactly am I trying to uh, to accomplish? And, and a lot of it is that when I first became interested in Christianity, um, and one of the first, you know, I, I was reading everybody, just trying to read everything. Um, I was pretty familiar with works that were written against Christianity, and I have my own views as an atheist. But I would read things like C.S. Lewis, and I remember reading this one line, and it's a, I think it's in God in the Dark, where, where Lewis talks about really the importance of Christianity, and he says, if it's not true, it's of no importance. But if it is true, it's so critical. So the one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And I think that that's... I mean, I think that's in all three of my books. I think I've used that over and over and over again. Uh, I've talked about that over and over and over again. Uh, that is really still what drives me, is that if this is true, it ought to shape really every decision I make and how I look at every critical issue in culture and how I look at every critical minute of my day and how I spend my time. Um, everyone's got something they think is so important that it's become part of their identity. 
you know, you might be a Green Bay Packer fan, I certainly am, and there's folks I know that's a part, such a part of their identity that they'll shape their calendar around Green Bay Packer games. Well, I've just decided to shape my calendar around the things that I think are important, and, that, and most of it is involved in making the case for what I believe is true. And not just because I believe it's true, but because I can actually show you why eventually it can be demonstrated. So that's, that's why I spend as much time as I do. This is interesting because that gets into the epistemological question that we've been dealing with on this podcast before of what exactly do we mean by truth? Um, philosophers have batted back and forth on this issue. Culture, current culture has different perspectives on it. Uh, and this, uh, uh, on the Logically Faithful show, what we focus on is the good, the true, and the beautiful. Now, mm. the pivotal part of that triangle is the true. How would you, if you could quantify that question of truth, how would you define truth and give us maybe uh, an example from your life as a, a cold case detective and how that would relate to something in the spiritual realm, which is not necessarily uh, something you can put on a scale? Yeah, well, probably like most of your readers, you know, or your listeners, rather, we're kind of like, we have these definitions of truth that at least get floated, or we've tested ourselves as human beings kind of trying to live in the world, you know, and I've, I've looked at some of those, and, and at times I was I would lean more on one, on one than the other. Not many of us think clearly about our definition of truth. Probably those of your listeners who have done that. Are, are in the vast minority of, of, think, of people in the country who, who they have a definition, but, but it's really kind of intuitive, uh, and they don't really, they couldn't really put it into words. Um, and so, so you know, is it, I, a lot of us are kind of default onto this, this, you know, this empiricism, this idea that what is true is what can be sensed with your five senses, can be demonstrated through science or some uh, empirical sciences. But of course, that definition by itself is self-refuting because you can't hold that. That definition cannot be demonstrated to be true with science. That's a philosophical position you have to take first before you can do any science. So it doesn't even abide by its own definition. You couldn't use that approach to determine if that approach is good. So that's that's a problem, I think. And I also think there are some things that are outside the realm of that kind of strict interpretation. Uh, I also have kind of looked at times in my life where I would have been more of a utilitarian or pragmatist in the sense that, well, what works is true. You know, when we cure certain diseases, we know what drugs cure the disease, even though we often don't know why that drug cures the disease. We just know we've tried everything else and this drug happens to work. Mm. So it's, it's the, the fact that it work make it true? Well, sometimes that can actually make some sense, and, and that might be applied to some uh, uh, cases, but I don't think it can be applied to every case. I mean, there are certainly some, some convenient uh, uh, mistruths that I have told that it worked. They were practically and pragmatically, you know, uh, do I look fat in this dress? I and mean, every husband who's ever encountered that question is probably going to use a useful, uh, which might be true, but it will work in the moment. And so I don't think we can use utilitarian kind of pragmatism as our goal for what determines truth. And I've, I've also known people who are motivists who, who, who you know, felt the truth is what they feel. Um, and I've got a lot of family members who are LDS who, who really, if I really kind of nail it down to how it is they, they believe that, why it is they believe that Mormonism is true, it really usually comes down to some sense of, of, of a motive response, a feeling. Uh, fire uh, in the bosom, you know, right? Yes, that's yeah. right. And, yeah. and I think we all know that, that we can make some really bad decisions if we follow our heart instead of our head. Mm. 
So I just don't think that's going to serve us well in the long term. The, the, the definition that I, most of us probably would agree on is this idea of correspondence theory, this idea that truth is simply a relationship between what you believe and what really is. When what you believe is equal to what really is, you hold a truth claim that is demonstrably true because what you believe is equal to what really is. And that, that changed it. If you take that approach to truth, okay. now you are stuck with having to look at your religious beliefs, your beliefs about Jesus or whoever it is you, whatever you, uh, world religion you embrace as true, and run it through that filter. Is what you believe equal to what really is? Not that you, it works for you, not that it, it feels good for you. Um, I mean, you've got to be able to make a correspondence between reality and your beliefs. And this is what we do at every criminal scene, right? We, we get there, and there are several pieces of evidence in the crime scene. And we've got to look at that, and we say, okay, we're really looking for the cause of this evidence. We are looking for the first cause of all the evidence in this scene. It's going to be our suspect. He or she is the person who uh, accounts for this evidence best. And on my team, at any one time, five of us as detectives and one sergeant, we will look at some of these kinds of things and we'll say, oh, you know, I think it's so-and-so. And then another detective will look at it and say, I think you're wrong. And we have definitely had disagreements on our team on particular cases about who we thought the correct suspect was. And when that happens, it's a battle of trying to figure out, does the evidence in our scene point to something that we don't know is true? And i got to tell you, we have to be modest about that in the sense that every time I thought I knew who did it, I still had many open, unanswered questions that I could not answer. But I still thought I had enough evidence to demonstrate that he was our killer. I had a case once where the guy uh, killed his wife and got rid of her body and claimed she ran off. And for six years, our agency did not work it. By the time I picked it up 20 years later, we had no pictures of a crime scene, no physical evidence, because the first uh, responders thought it was a missing persons case. And they never followed up on it. And, and six years later, we finally decided to open it as a homicide, and we were way behind the curve. When I finally took that guy to jail, I didn't have any physical evidence, no admissions on his part. Uh, I couldn't tell you how he killed her. I couldn't tell you what he did with her body because we never found it. I couldn't tell you how he got the body out of the house while his kids were still asleep and they were young. I couldn't tell you how he moved his car, the car, her car. And many of those questions almost seem like I can't imagine how he could have done it. But I couldn't answer those questions for the jury. Now, the jury found him guilty in about four hours. Uh, so clearly they had enough, even with all those opening questions. And at sentencing, he confessed to the entire crime and gave us the location of the body. Wow. So at the point of having to make a decision about what was true, the jury had to do so without being able to answer some of the most critical questions they might have had about how he did it. And that's helped me as I've gone through this process over and over and over again making these kinds of decisions. Is this what's called that, what you call uh, the circumstantial evidence? Right, we're building a cumulative circumstantial case. I mean, direct cases, only, there are only two kinds of cases, direct evidence cases and indirect evidence cases. Indirect evidence is also called circumstantial evidence, but direct evidence is limited to one kind of evidence. It's eyewitnesses who can tell you who did it. If I've got an eyewitness who saw the crime, I can make the case with one piece of direct evidence, the eyewitness's statement. Now, you have to kind of make sure that that eyewitness is reliable, and there's a process for that. But the point is, you can make it with one piece of evidence. When you don't have an eyewitness, you build it on the strength of a cumulative circumstantial case. All of my cases are the second kind. 
because obviously if we had a living eyewitness, it wouldn't have gone cold. I only work cold cases, because I only work crummy cases, cases that don't have eyewitnesses. Right. And so that's that's the kind of case I'm stuck with. But, but honestly, that's about 80% of criminal cases in America. We all think that these cases are all direct evidence cases. They aren't. The, the vast majority of cases are nothing but circumstantial. And, and Jim, um, so take this case for the, the, the principles and methodology you used in this case. Let's take one part of the spiritual realm. Many uh, times I'll be giving a lecture or discussing issues in philosophy or religion. Uh, almost every time somebody would bound to shoot the question up. Okay, how do I know among all the pantheon of religions uh, that, that what you're actually telling me is actually true? Um, how do I know? How can I navigate these waters? Um, I know there are so many ways you've done it, and in your book, God's Crime Scene, I thought was just a brilliant expose of that, and I strongly recommend that to my readers. But can you um, help us with just one part of the leg of uh, starting on that journey? How well, would I draw that? Yeah, from your experience to the, the, the to the spiritual, what, what evidence would I look for to see to start moving me in the right direction? Yeah, so I think one way, if we're just trying to decide if God exists, before we decide which of these many paths all claim to believe in God, which of those is true, uh, what we have is we have two kinds of evidence, right? Direct evidence and indirect evidence. The case we make for God's existence would have to be made indirectly because you don't have no living eyewitness who can who can tell you at the point of, of all creation what exactly happened. But we do have good forensic evidence after the fact. When you really have a crime, there's a point at which the crime occurs. And then all you have left over is the aftermath, evidential aftermath of the crime. So we are supposed to take that evidential aftermath, all the pieces of evidence that are left in the crime scene, and piece together what happened based forensically on what we have at hand. And sometimes it's not great, but sometimes it's, it's enough. And I, the same approach could be taken, and I always say this, when you, when you look at it in a crime scene, what you're really trying to do is play this game of inside or outside the room. If I, if I get there and there's a dead body and he's got a pistol laying by his side, but I can, I can tell you that that's his pistol, it's been in the house the whole time. There's even a demand, a, 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 a note, a, a suicide note in which he writes about his suicidal uh, uh, feelings and that he's going to kill himself. And that note comes from inside the room. It's in his handwriting. He's the only fingerprints on the note. He's the only fingerprints on the gun. In other words, everything in that room, I can explain by staying inside the room for an explanation. Because he's, he can do that by himself without any help from anyone outside the room. If it's a suicide, right? Now, if I get there, and the pistol is not his pistol, it's a foreign object, it doesn't even belong in the room, there, and there's a note, but the note's not written in his handwriting, and it doesn't have his fingerprints on it, it's got an unknown fingerprint and DNA on it, and it's not in his handwriting, and there's even bloody footprints leading out of the room. Okay, everything changes now, because now I can't explain the stuff I have in the room by staying in the room. Now, I have to go outside the room for an explanation. It's basically intruder investigations. Once I know I have an intruder, everything shifts from the ways you can die without an intruder, which are natural, accidental, and suicide, to the ways that require an intruder, which is homicide. So a lot of what I do is try to figure out if the evidence in the room is best explained by causes and sources inside the room, or if the best explanation is a cause or source that came inside the room from outside the room. So that's you know a lot of what we do in these kinds of investigations. The same approach could be. I think there are eight or nine or ten or twelve really critical pieces of evidence in the universe that have to be explained, and that everybody owes it to themselves. Whether you're a theist or an atheist, whether, regardless of where you are in your worldview, 
you owe it to yourself to try to answer those questions because they may actually tell you what the universe is like and maybe even give you some direction in terms of your own life. Um, and so those, those are the things about, you know, how did the room get here? Why does the room appear to be fine-tuned for life? Why, how did life emerge in the room? How, how did, why does life that did emerge in the room show signs of design? How, why is there this thing we experience called consciousness? If all the, the universe is is a materialistic, deterministic universe, which is what it would have to be if atheism is true, how do we have consciousness and free agency? And, and how, what is it that, that causes us to even be able to experience moral truth claims? Are they just our own invention? Yeah, these are the kinds of things that are in the room that we have to explain like any other piece of okay. evidence. Let's jump in then, um, taking the skeptic's hack here, and saying, yeah. how do you avoid then, in doing this, and in investigating the evidence outside the room, with not postulating mm -hmm. the, um, the ever-known and ever-famous God-in-the-gaps theory? Since I can't explain it, therefore, mm -hmm. God. It's raining. I don't right. know why. God must be mad at you, etc. And is it that a way of um, uh, non-thinking masses explain things through appealing to some non-physical, non-material force to explain what they can't explain? And then science comes in sooner or later, as uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and others seem to be talking about more and more often, and fills in those gaps, making religion and spiritual right. explanations more and more irrelevant. Um, how do you avoid leading that path in dealing with specifically? Let's say maybe on consciousness issue. Okay, so here's, here's what I think on, on that issue. I, I think if you start with a definition of what your God is, then you are likely to kind of end up with something that looks like your God, okay? <laughs> because you're letting that presuppositional bias guide you. And it's just confirmation theory, right? You're just going to try to confirm your beliefs to begin with. I didn't do that because I, didn't, I was not a Christian. And I, I was curious. I mean, there's so many possibilities about what God can look like. So here's what I basically did. I said, if I'm trying to explain these eight things that are in the universe... Eventually, I'm going to get a description because every crime scene provides me with what I call a suspect profile. I, I'm looking for a particular kind of suspect. If I knew that the person is wearing a size 13 men's shoe, because that's the pattern I have leaving the room, I'm looking for a guy who wears a 13. I'm looking for a guy. I'm looking for a guy or, you know, is there any woman who wears a size 13 men's shoe? I don't think so. So I'm, it already is starting to tell me something about the characteristic. That's going to eliminate a lot of people for me, right? I mean, it's going, it's going to, because I just know I'm looking for that size guy. So all the other size guys don't work. So I already can eliminate other different kinds of guys. So, so the same thing happens here. So if all you did was say, well, look, it's not a guy with a gap. I'm going to let the evidence tell me what kind of suspect I'm looking for. So I'm looking for, apparently, a first cause that is neither spatial, temporal, or material, because we have, our science is telling us that all space, time, and matter begins at the beginning of this universe. And since you can't create yourself, that means I'm looking for something other than that that's a first cause of that stuff. So you see, as I go through all the eight pieces of evidence, it starts to give me a picture. I'm just looking for what matches that picture. I don't really care what the picture is. I don't care what my suspect is when I'm working a case. If it turned out I'm looking for a, um, uh, a short, uh, one-legged white guy, I'm okay. I don't care if that's what it is. I, I'm just going to look for what it is the evidence tells me I should be looking for. I don't have a horse in that race. So the same thing happens here. I don't have a horse in this race. I mean, it just turns out that not only is there one thing, it's not as though science could give me an explanation for the other seven things, but there's one still working on. Uh, no, the more we know about these eight things, the deeper the wormhole. 
we're not getting closer to an answer here. We're getting further and further from a naturalistic answer, and it turns out the kind of cause that could explain these things is pretty clear. And there is one common causal suspect that could explain these things. Okay. But of course, as a naturalist, I didn't. I was. Here's what it comes down to. Every investigation involves those big questions, you know, the what, where, why, how, when, who questions. Those are the same questions that we ask when we write good papers, right? right. We want to answer those kinds of questions. Well, naturalists are really good. Atheists like me are really good at asking the first questions, but not the last. We're willing to ask the what, where, when, why, how questions, but we will never ask a who question. Hmm. What if the whole cause of the universe that is responsible for the what, why, when, how, where is a who? Hmm. If it's a who, we are never going to find it if we presuppositionally decide that we are not asking who questions. Now, why would we do that? Why wouldn't we at least say, look, we're going to ask the other five questions. Let's just ask the last question you have to ask to complete any good investigation. By the way, if I refuse to ask who questions, no one goes to jail. I can learn a lot about the crime, where it occurred, how it occurred, when it occurred. But until I ask the who question, there's no one to arrest. Okay. So in the end, I think it's fair that the, my problem is not that I've got, they got gaps and all I ask is who questions. The problem is that the other side refuses to ask the who question. I'm willing to ask all the other five plus the who. They're only willing to ask the other five. And who's the one that's limiting the evidence here? You, you are the naturalist, right? The naturalist right. should be the one. That... Whatever, whatever you believe up front is the, the limit. To you, you, we set our own limits on how we investigate cases. Mm. I could say to myself, for example, you know what? I'm just not going to consider any African-American females. It might be, a, but I'm just going to up front tell you, I know nothing about this case. But I'm going to, before I know anything about the case, I'm going to tell you up front, I am not comfortable ever finding that the suspect is going to be an African-American female. Well, what if it is an African-American female? I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, out. I'm not find it, right? Yeah. So I can't decide up front what I won't ask. This is fascinating. It reminds me of the interviews, a uh, couple of interviews, I believe he did, uh, uh, Richard Dawkins, where he said, whatever it is, whatever this entity or being is, it must not be God. It must be something else. Now let's look at that. That seems to be ruling out uh, the, co the, the, the cause, the beginning cause of all things, space and time. To be anything but God is a naturalistic type of uh, uh, straitjacket that you seem to be putting on the evidence itself. It seems to be more, if I, if I may, uh, a more a naturalism in the gaps rather than God in the gaps. Well, well, right. I, mean, I think in the end, what we do is do is this. We say, look, I got these evidences. I, I, I can explain them a number of ways. Okay, great. Give me your explanations. And as I look at the naturalistic explanations, okay, mm. this is where it gets really dicey, right? Is, is that if I just say, well, all of us who are Christians, we're all theists, okay? Mm. We are all theists. So we would say that God is the creator of all these things. We're in harmony on that. We're in agreement on that. Now, we may disagree about what, how God is manifest, but the mechanism by which God accomplishes these things is the same for all of us. Okay, he's responsible for all eight of these things. Now, you might say, he's got brown hair, and I say he's blonde. Okay, we can argue about some of those details. All right, and that's gonna, they're going to separate us as believers. I get that. But atheists don't just argue about the hair color. They think that the entire suspects are different. So if you listen to the alternative explanations in cosmology, or the alternative explanations in biology, or the alternative explanations for the problem of mind, you will see that these folks do not agree with each other about the cause. At all. They are arguing with each other. They are not in agreement. There is no consensus. This is why I say that to me, that that, that requires a, a bigger step of, of accepting something without 
um, good reason than our side does. Yeah, I see that with Stephen Hawking and Penrose and others. They, the disagreements are, are, are epidemic on that. So this and being... There are foundational disagreements too, right? You, right. you see there are foundational to how you even approach the, the uh, issue to begin with. Okay, so this being is whatever it is that made the universe would be, as, as some of our uh, uh, contemporaries have said, be timeless, changeless, beginningless, immaterial, spaceless, powerful, very intelligent... And it seems to be the case that the one who has these on his resume or CV, if you will, would be the classic theistic God. And if that's the case, then that leads us more to, of course, the rabbit hill. The rabbit trail uh, leads us into deeper into the forest. That leads us right. further into the question of which God, why that that's God, right. etc. That'll that's lead right. further. But before we go there, let, let me back up just a little bit. Uh, Jim, when I first got into philosophy, uh, I was fascinated with the, the, the question of truth and the one that you brought up there. And I naively accepted the notion that if I just showed the truth that I found to be powerfully impacting in my life to others, they would readily accept it. Oh, was I in for a rude awakening. Uh, I found out that my naivety was equal to my arrogance in that process. That truth itself, by being presented to people, without taking into account their biases, their worldviews, and the way they see things, is bound to failure. So as yep. you are presenting evidence to others, how much does our, do our uh, confirmation biases blind us to or help us to overcome or deal with the question of truth? And how do we navigate those waters as we deal with people in that realm? Well, good, good observations. And people ask me this all the time, too. You know, I'm a detective. I'm a Wallace. Uh, my name is Jim Wallace, and I've been working as a detective for years and years and years. There's another Jim Wallace out there mm -hmm. who also worked uh, in, in, as a detective for years and years and years, and he's my dad. And my dad comes to a very different conclusion when it comes to issues related to faith and issues of, uh, of related to whether God exists and whether Christianity is true. And uh, he's still a very committed atheist. Well, how is it that two Jim Wallaces, for the most part, from the same family who have spent more hours together probably than any other two men, except for my own kids and myself, uh, how is it that we could come to such different conclusions? Given we're supposedly using the same process, and you're absolutely right. The difference I try to help people understand is that the facts are different than inferences, and sometimes people confuse those two things, and they will call what is an inference a fact. So, if you want to say that Darwinian evolution, as we are considering it today, as, as maybe it was accepted, say, 20 years ago, is a fact, you're really not using the word fact in the correct way. It's an inference. It's an inference from facts. We're going to look at some, some, some things we see in biology, mm -hmm. some observations we make in the biological realm, and from those observations, which could be facts, the same way I can say, hey, I've got a twi size 12 footprint here. Well, I can measure that, and I can tell you, if it is in fact a 12, uh, size 12 men's shoe print, okay? That's a fact. This isn't say much in terms of what suspect it is. Now, I'm going to come to an inference about the suspect at some point, given this fact. But then to call the inference a fact, is it would be a, unless I find that guy and he confesses and tells me, then I know it's a fact because he's actually admitted to it. Mm -hmm. But until that happens, it's really an inference. And we move on inferences. We make lots of life decisions based on inferences. You, you, you walk into your car. Uh, and and you, you, it could very easily blow up in your driveway when you just turn the key. 
Yeah, that happens all the time. People plant car bombs all the time. But you start to assess the evidence, you know, the facts of your own common experience, and you make an inference. It's still possible that car will blow up in your driveway, but it's not reasonable. And so we operate under the standard of proof called beyond a reasonable doubt. The inference has to be reasonable for us to act on it. But if you're saying it has to be beyond a possible doubt, well, there's nothing in your life that you know, aside from the fact your own conscious experience right now, that you can know beyond a possible doubt. Even your own conscious experience, I could probably throw some possibilities out there. We could be dreaming this whole thing. This could be part of a very elaborate matrix. I mean, who knows? But the point is, to say that I'm, I have to know something is true beyond a possible doubt before I can act um, as, as always is true, then be prepared to stay home all day today, not go anywhere, because you can't really move and act in the world if that's your standard of proof. You need a more reasonable, uh, effective standard of proof. It's the standard of proof we use in the most critical trials across America, and that is not beyond a possible doubt. That's not a standard of proof in any courtroom. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. Even when we're going to sentence someone to the death chamber, to the gas chamber, or the death penalty, we are using that standard, which is far below possible doubt. It's reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. Now, the bias that you talked about is absolutely true, and that's why people ask me all the time, well, where... Where do you make the most progress, you know, in terms of sharing gospel? Uh, in your own case, where do you make the most progress in terms of winning criminal cases? Do you, is, is it three hours or four hours you spend in opening statements? Uh, no. And it's not the, uh, you know, six weeks we spend in the evidence show. And it's not in the, the four hours we're going to spend in closing arguments or in, in the jury deliberation process. We win or lose cases in jury selection. Sorry. It's just the truth of it. If you don't pick the right jury, you don't win. Hmm. And jury selection is critical. We put 12 people in the box, four people as alternates on big, long, critical cases. So we need 16 people. And both sides want the right 16 people in that box. And the, the room we start off with, the 70-plus people, is, is deeply divided sometimes. And there are lots of people. Everyone holds an opinion. And the question is, are they so biased that they, they, they could never be fair? And that's the question. Do they have to have every possible answer before they can make a decision? That's the question. We ask those questions of jurors in an effort to keep those people off our jury if they cannot make a reasonable inference and, 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 and be comfortable with open, unanswered questions. If that, you can't do it, you're not going to be on a jury. We're going to excuse you. Now, we, we get to exempt uh, you know, like over 20, and so does the other side. So both sides get to exclude those jurors that they think are going to hurt them. And that's fair. And, and so I think in the end, and this is what I talk about in the next book called Forensic Faith, we have to be able to, to be really good at selecting our jury. And this is true for those of us who want to share the gospel, too, or share any truth claim of any worldview you hold. You can spend a lot of time working with some people who you were dead in the water before you started because you picked the wrong person to share with. Hmm. And so it's important for us to be really smart and wise and skillful in how we select a jury. That's a process that I describe in the book. This is interesting, a side point, but the jurisprudence in the West of having 12 people on the jury is connected to the man in Nazareth who selected 12 disciples to make the most important decision or bring forward the most important events in history to the world. Twelve ordinary people to tell the world right. about himself. And that comes from Jesus, as much as the days of the week come from Genesis as well. I think it's just to be fascinating. Right. 
Well, think about this too for a second. I mean, it's, it's so important because we often think, well, I couldn't even make a decision. I could not begin to examine the evidence in the universe unless I'm an astrophysicist. I can't look at the evidence in biology unless I'm a biochemist. I can't look at uh, the problem of mind unless I'm a PhD philosopher. Really? Well, we bring in experts all the time in the criminal trials, but guess what? They don't get a vote. The only people who get a vote are lay people, people who are just regular citizens who are smart and passionate enough about wanting to get to the truth to be able to listen to the experts and then form a reasonable decision based on what experts are taking. Because trust me, you think that I'm going to put a piece of evidence forward. I'm going to bring in an expert, and that expert is going to say it means A. And then the defense is going to hire an expert, probably a much better pedigree, who's going to come in and look at the exact same piece of evidence and say that means Z. Hmm. So now we've got two PhD experts who have diametrically opposed opinions about what the so don't tell me that we have to. If you, we're going to ask our jurors to decide between those two experts. Well, that concludes part one of my interview with Jim Wallace. If you liked what you hear and got something out of this interview, I would appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes and go ahead and sign up on the Logically Faithful website. You can get a free ebook called 10 Things Science Cannot Prove. Go make the world a better place, one life at a time.